hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to bring to you a special session of the McCullough Report, December 2022. The context is U.S. Senate testimony. This is a special panel assembled by Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson, assisted by Republican Senator from Kansas, Roger Marshall. And the title of the session was COVID-19 vaccines, what are they and why are they leading to injuries, disabilities, and deaths? The panel uh, brought in some new doctors for America to hear their opinions, uh, including Dr. James Thorpe, an obstetrician gynecologist who's been a prior guest on the McCullough Report. We also had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Teresa Long, a flight surgeon for the US military. Uh, The return of Dr. Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey, critical care doctors, leaders, of the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. Myself, Dr. Ryan Cole, leading pathologist who's been studying the impact of the COVID-19 vaccines on human uh, pathological specimens. We had for the first time, David Gortler, former FDA official, pharmacologist expert, someone who's coming clean on COVID-19 vaccines. We had Dr. David Wiseman, who is a, a former Johnson & Johnson vaccine development expert who's testified at the USA uh, FDA vaccine uh, deliberations for EUA approval and then for other uh, recommendations on the vaccines. Renata Moon, who is a academic pediatrician from Washington University in St. Louis and a variety of other academic positions in the course of her career. We had uh, Uh, Dr. Kirk Milhone, pediatric uh, cardiologist, who's been dealing with the issue of COVID-19 in children, as well as as the vaccine uh, injuries. And then we had, uh, uh, finally, some other experts, including uh, Edward Dowd, former BlackRock executive, now uh, studying the all-cause mortality rates from actuaries uh, and insurance companies. He was assisted by insurance expert Josh uh, Sterling. And we had uh, an array of vaccine injured individuals, uh, legal representatives, other scientists who weighed in at this historic panel. I wanna start out with Dr. Johnson's opening statements and then I'll pick some key excerpts from the three hour testimony. I'll post the entire uh, testimony uh, in the meeting notes uh, for this broadcast today, and I'd encourage you to go to the Highwire. The Highwire, led by Dell Bigtree, was kind enough to not only broadcast this live, but do a very nice video production of it where it identifies each speaker and their comments. It's very high quality. But these U.S. Senate panels that have been convened from the start of the pandemic, led by Senator Ron Johnson and then assisted by others, have been invaluable in terms of helping Americans and the world understand where we are with respect to pandemic response, early treatment, vaccines, and now consequences from the vaccines. But importantly, having this in the U.S. Senate record and then in the National Archives for permanent record 
of what was said and what was thought at the time. Okay, let's pick up with Senator Ron Johnson and his initial remarks. This is carried by the High Wire as well as One America News. Here we go, Senator Ron Johnson, December 7th, 2022, U.S. Senate. Subject. The, the, you do need to delve, delve into scientific details and use scientific terms. And how do you do it so a guy like me can understand? And I guess I'll, I'll be sort of the, the watchdog there to uh, say, hey, doctor, I, I don't understand. Can you make that a little bit more clear? Uh, so just quick summary you know, how I got involved in this. Um, you know, it started pretty early on for my advocacy of early treatment. And I had no idea why we didn't robustly pursue that, but we simply didn't. So I held hearings in May. Pierre Corey came and talked about corticosteroids. I held a hearing in November where we had Dr. McCulloch, Dr. Rich, Dr. Fareed, up against Dr. Ja. Uh, again, one in December where we brought back uh, Pierre Corey, among others, uh, talking about different repurposed drugs. And then because of my advocacy for early treatment, I got connected to a global network of eminently qualified doctors and medical researchers who, who are expressing some concerns about a, a rushed vaccine. A, a vaccine that would have the body produce what we now believe is probably its own toxin. The, the, some people will recognize that even back then. Or the dangers of mass vaccination in the midst of pandemic that could drive variants. We'll probably talk about that today. But certainly by March or April, because I was concerned. I, I thought we should have exercised far more caution as opposed to throw caution. Percent of those deaths reported worldwide occur in days zero, one, or two following the vaccine. Again, I know VAERS doesn't prove causation, but that sure got my attention. It's just amazing to me it hasn't got the attention of our, our regulators. So that's kind of how I, what brought me down this road that I got introduced to the vaccine injured and to a certain extent that the rest is a uh, is history, a very uh, widely kept secret history, uh, but that's where we are today. So we're going to start out today uh, really describing why we're here. And it kind of starts with VAERS, and it'll start with uh, Ms. Liz Wilner, who is a professional web developer with over 25 years of experience in the field. She is the designer creator of Open VAERS. Liz is also a mother of a vaccine-injured child, which was the catalyst that led her to research the vaccine adverse event reporting system, VAERS. She found the federal database antiquated and cumbersome, to say the least. So she built the Open Veyers website to make the Veyers data more accessible. So Liz, take it away. Thank you, Senator. And um, I just want to say what an honor it is to be here amongst such a distinguished group. And wow. Um, Veyers, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, was designed to be an early warning system. It is doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing, but nobody's listening. Um, this chart shows before and after the introduction of the COVID vaccine for the U.S. Um, these are severe adverse events, uh, reports of death, hospitalizations, permanent disability, and life-threatening events. Um, per year, reports of death, 163. There's been a 4,800% increase in the last two years. For hospitalization, a 2,876% increase. For permanent disabilities, a 2,150% increase. And for life-threatening events, a 2,108% increase. These point to problems, points to problems that need investigation. When we see signals, we should be pausing 
and studying what's happening. We haven't done that, and it's extremely disappointing to me as a citizen of the United States that that's what's occurring. Um, every life matters. This is a safety signal that is screaming with nobody paying attention, and that needs to change. Thank you. Just to confirm, what you're talking, just U.S. various reports, I, I was talking about global, worldwide statistics. I think the you know, obviously the reports are probably a little more, a uh, little better here in terms of the U.S., so you're focusing on those. And my information also, about 18% of the deaths reported in the U.S. on VAERS occur on day zero, one, or two, which are also indicated yeah. in safety signal. So ne next we'll turn to uh, Mr. Aaron Siri who is the managing partner of Siri and Glimstead LLP and has extensive experience in a wide range of complex civil litigation matters with a focus on civil rights, class action, and complex civil litigation. Mr. Siri has a long history of practice in the area of vaccine injury and related litigation. He handled his first vaccine injury case before the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program in the U.S. Federal Court of Claims in 2012, and Aaron's here to talk about the V-SAFE system. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, yes, I'm gonna. Since I have five minutes, I'm gonna talk a little quicker than normal, but hopefully everybody will be able to follow along. Uh, my firm has over 20 individuals that exclusively work on vaccine-related matters, we do vaccine injury, vaccine um, exemptions, and, and vaccine policy work. And almost all that vaccine policy work is done on behalf of the Informed Consent Action Network. I can. The reason I tell you that is because I can asked us over a year and a half ago to please get the data from the V-Safe system. V-Safe is the CDC's premier vaccine safety system for the COVID-19 vaccine. It was exclusively designed and rolled out to assess the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine. The V-Safe system has over 10 million individuals that use the system. And what it does is it has them complete a weekly and then health check-in to uh, gather standardized information. In that way, it is better than theirs because it actually is able to calculate a rate. If 200,000 people report to VSAFE that they have myocarditis and there are 10 million people, you can figure out a 2% rate of myocarditis. Can't do that exactly with theirs because you don't know the denominator. It also, in, in, in some ways, is better than a clinical trial. Clinical trial for the Pfizer COVID vaccine had 30,000 participants. This is 10 million participants. And just like a clinical trial, VSAFE relies on asking participants to provide information about their experience after the shot, and it does it in a standardized way. Uh, unlike um, uh, a clinical trial, the data, though, is not then filtered through pharmaceutical companies. With VSAFE, it's directly without going through that filter, so maybe it's a little bit more reliable. Okay, with that, what's in VSAFE? What information did VSAFE gather? First slide, please. It essentially gathered only two categories of information. First were symptoms. Um, second slide, please. Now, when you look at the symptoms, what you will see is they include fever, they include chills, uh, pain. They're the type of symptoms that the CDC says you should expect in the first week after getting a shot because they call that reactogenicity. That means the vaccine they say is working or having an immune reaction. So you're listening to uh, lead attorney Aaron Siri, who has pressed the CDC to release the V-Safe data. They didn't want to release this, these data to Americans 
uh, and the bombshell report that Aaron Siri had already presented on Fox News just a few weeks earlier was that in a stunning number, seven to eight percent of people taking the vaccine were being hospitalized, going to urgent care centers, and a large proportion were uh, incapacitated at least for a few days after taking the vaccine. To gather that information in a systematic way, one might say, okay, maybe the CDC didn't know the vaccine could cause those issues in December 2020 when it rolled out be safe. Next slide, please. But that's not the case. In October 2020, as seen on the slide, in a presentation that the CDC gave, it listed the preliminary list of adverse events of special interest. And on that list, right there on the screen, pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis, seizures, all the issues that we are now facing, many individuals are facing from this vaccine, were right on that list. They could have put them as check the box options, but they didn't. In fact, next slide, please. The, v, the CDC itself, in designing VSAFE, created a protocol for designing it. And on that protocol, on that screen, you can see specifically listed those same exact conditions as adverse events of special interest, pre-specified medical conditions. It listed those conditions as conditions of special interest in its own design for VSAFE. But when it rolled VSAFE out, they were not there as check the box options. Okay, that takes us to the first category of information that VSAFE collects, the symptoms. Not very useful for assessing safety. Next category of information. That is the health impact. Next slide, please. Now, on this so basically what Aaron Siri is telling us is that the CDC knew about these side effects. They had actually designed this entire cell phone app to collect all of these uh, symptoms. They collected the data, and then they worked to block this information to Americans. Uh, and, and this is, uh, in many ways, just uh, prima facie evidence of wrongdoing by our CDC. That this is where the CDC was finally in V-Safe, this act is in fact called V-Safe, to assess safety, would assess safety. You would imagine they would have set a threshold above which they would have said, okay, we got to pull the plug on the shot. If medical care, that people reporting needing medical care was one in 500, maybe one in 300, maybe one in 100. Had it been some threshold, right? Well, um, let's take a look at what those numbers look like. And I, and I, and I, I, I so, forgot So he's making an important point that this is called the CDC V-Safe system. It's supposed to keep Americans safe, that they must have had a threshold by which if they would have seen a safety signal in order to keep Americans safe, the CDC and the FDA, which are running the vaccine program, should have pulled the plug on the program. But in fact, they didn't. And this is a dashboard that I can create to be able to visually represent the VSAFE data. About 800,000 people reported needing medical care in the database of 9, 10 million. That's about a 7.7% of people in VSAFE reported needing medical care. These were not people who came, signed up for VSAFE to report medical issues. Most VSAFE users signed up before they had any medical issues, when they first just got the shots, before they had any symptoms at all, at the, at the behest of the CDC. 7.7%, that is one in 13 people, yet the CDC did not pull the shot. Most, 25% of those people needed emergency room care or uh, were hospitalized and another 40% sought urgent care. Um, also another 25% on top of that 7.7% reported being unable to work or, or go to school. Um, was the CDC transparent about this information? 
No. It took us a year and a half of legal battles to get it, two lawsuits in federal court, only before they had no other choice did they finally reveal it. Finally, um, during that year and a half, last point, um, during that year and a half, what were they telling the American public about what VSAFE showed? They published study after study after study in which the only thing that CDC revealed to the public was effectively what the uh, medical care rate was in the first week after the shot, which was like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, so 0.4%. Siri goes on to say that the CDC was very clearly trying to block this information to the American public. He knows because he was fighting to get this information out to America. And, and finally, it does see its light of day at the U.S. Uh, Senate hearings. Now, I want to have you listen into some insurance experts here on what they're seeing with respect to uh, all-cause mortality and Senator Johnson's response. First dose and had a severe reaction, they're not going to take the second one. So. First of all, thank you all. First panel, you stayed on time and you set a good example for everybody else, not to put too much pressure on you. Uh, but now, now we're going to turn to, so that, that was kind of the setup. You know, all these different safety signals that I think are just, oh, I'm sorry, we have one left. That's all I got. Okay, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Teresa Long uh, also is going to talk about what she has found inside the information system within the Senator yes. Johnson almost yeah. forgot in the first session to have Teresa Long give her testimony. She's Lieutenant Colonel in the military and she's been on the McCullough Report and uh, let's hear what he has to say regarding the military where they know who has taken the vaccine and exactly what's happened. They do, however, reflect the reality of the vaccine injured service members and the concerns of the unvaccinated across the DOD. Senator, in January 2021, I came before you as a military whistleblower reporting catastrophic increases in illnesses and injuries across the DOD being reported in the DMED. These concerns were brushed aside by the DOD as data glitches in our defense medical surveillance system. It was reported that this computer glitch was fixed. Per your request for an update, Last night, I ran a query in the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database looking at all illnesses and injuries across the DOD. As you can see, um, the total number of reportable events went from 110,000 in 2020 to over 200,000 in 2022. The vaccine was introduced into the military in January of 2021. A reportable event is defined um, as an inherent significant threat to public health and military operations. A reportable event um, represents severe life-threatening clinical manifestations that disrupt military training and deployment. These numbers are consistent with the over um, statistically significant rise in vaccine adverse event reports on service members as provided to me by the CDC showing 34,000 reports and 119 deaths. Compare this, Senator, to the 93 deaths of service members that were attributed to SARS-CoV-2 infection. Clearly the risk of the vaccine has already outweighed the benefit. Military vaccine mandates are dangerous and deadly, and they must stop immediately. Thank you, Dr. Long. So again, we see these safety signals, and 
we are asking why are they being ignored? They shouldn't be ignored. We got a lot of questions. So now, now we're going to turn to really the, the, the guts of uh, you know what this. So Teresa Long was very clear and I think concise in that uh, more military servicemen have actually died with the COVID-19 vaccine than have actually died with COVID-19 illness itself, and that the overall number of serious adverse events that basically disable our servicemen skyrocketed on that graph that she showed. It was about 40, uh, I believe it was 40,000 events per year in 2020 with COVID. It jumped up to 110, and then with the vaccines, up to over 200. So it was really just a stunning uh, advance in terms of what's happening to the health of our military because of the vaccines. Now let's listen in to a few words from Dr. Harvey Risch, a former professor of medicine at Yale University. Hospitalization and mortality. And so this slide that you see now shows the breakdown, the distribution of mortality through September of last year for Omicron by age group. And you can see that there are almost no bars in the youngest age groups, and that's because there is almost no mortality. And the mortality that exists in those age groups is due to chronic conditions such as obesity, diabetes, chronic heart disease, chronic kidney disease, immunocompromised. Almost entirely in those age groups, and even in the older age groups, the mortality is among people who have multiple chronic conditions. But the point of this is that when you have such low or non-existent mortality in these low age groups, the potential serious adverse effects of the vaccine will surmount the non-existent mortality of these age groups. And therefore, what we've been told that everybody has to be vaccinated, that all these approvals for the vaccines that have pushed their way down into the youngest age groups had no reason to be there in the first place because there was no mortality that they were trying to prevent. We already know that the vaccines don't prevent spread as the CDC said on August 11th. They don't prevent transmission. So the only point of them is for personal protection as treatment if one wants to choose that. And yet there's no reason to choose that when the mortality from the, the infection is orders of magnitude less than it would be from the vaccine. And that's what this chart shows. So real quick to look at the numbers, standard flu season has what level of mortality compared to, again, you've got 0 to 17 .01, 18 to 29.05, 30 to 39.15. What, what's the standard flu season? It's, it's comparable to this, is that approximately plus or minus. Okay, so <laughs> kind, of, kind of like flu, you know, pretty deadly if you're pretty old or if you have different comorbidities. Correct. Next, I'm going to call on, uh, in combination, Dr. Paul Merrick and Dr. Pierre Corey uh, to just discuss, you know, based on now we know about the, the actual virus itself and that spike protein and how it impacted the body, you know, wh what could have we done, what did they do in trying to treat people with that disease, you know, treat as opposed to vaccinate. So let's turn it over now, to Now, Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick returned, and their testimony was very similar to prior U.S. Senate testimony. And I wanted them there to give an update on treatment, uh, and they did inform America that, in fact, we could have treated the illness uh, all the way through. Uh, so we'll skip forward now to a few other key parts to the session uh, before we take our our break. I want you to hear 
from the only FDA official who's broken ranks out of the 20,000 FDA officials uh, that we have and staff and other service workers, Dr. David Gortler, who's a, been a former professor of pharmacology, a pharmacovigilance expert. Let's listen to what he says. This is just remarkable. Giving these vaccines at this point for the COVID-19, named after 2019, for a strain of the vaccine that no longer exists. And because there have been safety issues with this, even when we're giving the bivalent vaccine, we're still giving the original vaccine as part of that bivalent vaccine, which has its own separate safety issues. As, as, as Peter, Dr. McCullough will talk about later on, and everyone at this table will talk about their personal experience and what the data has borne out. Thank you, David. Next, I want to turn to uh, Dale Bigtree, who I asked to put together a video. If uh, one of you could just quick give up your seat. Um, somebody? Everyone. I guess, I guess Paul. Uh, Dale put together a quick little video clip that I think sort of encapsulates what we've been told. And, of course, what we all assumed is happening is uh, Dr. Gortler was talking about didn't happen. But, Dale, why don't you uh, introduce the video? Well, we, we live in a time where we're discussing misinformation. Almost everybody at this table has been claimed to be spreading misinformation. I just wanted to show what we were actually seeing in the news as the official information and sort of just bring up a question that brought about as a journalist looking into this. So we can play the video. Go right ahead. Everyone, everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission. Uh, to other people and allowing society to get back to normal. We can kind of almost see the end. We're, we're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Getting vaccinated and getting a booster shot when eligible can save your life and protect you and your family and friends from getting seriously ill and spreading infection. What do you think the probability is? 80%? Personally, I think it's 100%. I think that there's a reduction and transmission. Right. Essentially, vaccines block you from getting and giving um, the virus. If enough people get vaccinated, it actually halts transmission. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. We have all the vaccines we need. We just need our people to take it. A, for their own protection, for the protection of their family, but also to break the chain of transmission. You want to be a dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. You don't allow it to use you as the stepping stone to the next person. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them, the virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. I just want to point out that obviously we haven't gotten to the end of this. And, you know, when those statements were being made as a journalist, I looked at the emergency use authorization for the vaccine and wanted to see had they achieved the stopping transmission, which is our definition of a vaccine. For most lay people, which is all I am, I'm not a medical 
uh, expert, but, but we're supposed to be able to stop the infection, therefore we can create herd immunity. But when we looked at the emergency use authorization, which is right on the screen, if you look what it says under transmission, this is what was known the moment they were making those statements. Can I have the next slide, please? What was known was that the data are um, not there, limited to assess the effects of the vaccine against transmission of SARS-CoV-2. They had no idea. They had no idea if it would stop the infection, yet they were making those statements on the news. And then just a few weeks ago at the EU, they were having hearings that are very important right now. They, they asked uh, Borla, the head of Pfizer, to come in. He sent someone just underneath him. This is what she had to say when asked about testing of transmission in the trials for the vaccine. I think you'll find this interesting. Was, was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping immunisation before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. I just want to finish up this point by saying that, you know, now the EU is looking at suing to get their money back because of the fraud over this product. We were told that this would stop transmission, and now we find out from the heads of Pfizer that they were never even testing inside the trials whether or not it could stop transmission. Let's be perfectly clear. I come from Hollywood. You can't get on a film set or on a television set without being a PCR tested every single day. We had children in this country that couldn't go into kindergarten without being PCR tested every day. Everyone that works in the workforce that had to go in the office needed to be PCR tested each every day or maybe at least once a week. And we are finding now that if you didn't like being PCR tested, the only place you were safe to not be tested on whether you could be transmitting the virus was in the trials for Moderna and for Pfizer where they're supposed to be proving they can stop transmission. I think this is one of the most outrageous discoveries and it shows how unbelievably bad these trials, I think, actually were. Thank you very much for your time, Senator Johnson. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dale. Before we move on to uh, a discussion of what tests weren't undertaken, uh, I do want to point out the fact that for, I think, the fourth time I invited you know, heads of these, or their best representative of the agencies of the uh, pharm uh, big pharma companies, uh, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Tabak, uh, Dr. Burla, Dr. Sahin, uh, Stephanie Bansell, Dr. Ja, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Califf, Dr. Marks, Dr. Shimabukuro. Now, I understand their reluctance not to step into a public forum, but you know, we had an all day private event, private meeting, closed door, no press, no recordings. That had been the perfect opportunity here in DC where we had these eminently qualified doctors, medical researchers that I think everybody recognizes know their stuff. That had been the perfect opportunity for them to at least send representatives to make their case. They have steadfastly refused to discuss and debate the second opinion. I find that shameful, but right now I want to continue the discussion. I'll have uh, Dr. So Powell. Senator Johnson is making the point that, uh, you know, the government officials were all invited to come. They all 
had places around the table. We had a closed session meeting on December 6th, uh, and then the following open session that you're hearing on December 7th, and none of the government officials came to meet the practicing doctors, the scientists, those who were publishing in this space, the data experts, the injured patients after the vaccine. In fact, our government agencies have been stonewalling us in the academic community and in the practice community since the start of the pandemic. Johnson called them out. It's very clear. Well, we're coming up on a break here uh, for the middle of the program. Uh, we're, t we're listening in on the historic December 7th, 2022 U.S. Senate hearings. Senator Ron Johnson, later he'll be assisted by Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas. I co-moderated the session, Dr. McCullough, and you're listening to The McCullough Report. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is The McCullough Report. It's cold and flu season. It's around the holiday time period, and now is the time for continuous clean air. I'm talking HOCL clean air and the Genesis Fogger and the new UX4 stationary HOCL atomizer. This handsome unit, which is stationary, uh, it is long lasting, uh, unobtrusive, can cleanse the air in your household, particularly the high risk areas where there's congregate activity, lots of people, uh, people who could be harboring pathogens. We're talking about common cold, influenza, SARS-CoV-2, respiratory syncytial virus. For those who are immunocompromised, we're always worried about aspergillus and mold spores. For those elderly with emphysema, heart and lung disease, we're always worried about bacterial sources of pneumonia. We're talking atypical organisms, mycoplasma and chlamydia, TWAR. Uh, all of these are handled by the Genesis HOCL UX4 a stationary HOCL atomizer. You can go to our website, go to the banner bar, and click on the Genesis Fogger for a discount on your first purchase. Let's be safe this holiday. Let's be safe together with Genesis HOCL. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the povidone iodine-based nasal spray Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20%. By using promo code OUTLOUD. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're in the middle of December 7th, 2022, special U.S. session. You just heard 
on the uh, first half of the McCullough Report, this final little medley of government officials from, uh, from Michelle Lewinsky to Anthony Fauci, uh, Peter Marks, FDA official, and then the media, Rachel Maddow, um, Scott Gottlieb, it went on and on uh, about making false claims about the vaccine, saying that it stopped COVID in its tracks, it stopped transmission, it protected others. The vaccines have done none of the above. And I think those false claims of those officials are part of the reason why they won't show up to the U.S. Senate and face me as the co-moderator, Senator Johnson as the chairman, or any of the other members on our prestigious panel. Uh, one of the panel members I personally invited, and he came all the way from Hawaii, is uh, Dr. Kirk Milhone, who's an MD, PhD, former military officer, and a pediatric cardiologist who is an expert on COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. Let's listen in to Dr. Kirk Milhone. So we know from Dr. Rich's data that the risk for children with COVID is exceedingly low. But we now know that there's a real risk from vaccine-induced myocarditis. So let me start with the explanation of what myocarditis is. The word is a combination of muscle, heart, and inflamed. The heart is primarily a muscle. And when it is inflamed, it functions, its function is compromised. Much like when you bruise or strain a muscle, when you strain a leg muscle, your doctor tells you to rest it. The difficulty when the heart has been injured, even if it's minor, it is very difficult to rest it because it still needs to beat 70 times a minute, 4,200 times an hour, and 100,800 times a day. The concentration of my PhD dissertation in cardiovascular physiology and pharmacology was the area of study specifically looking at the cellular mechanisms for the heart muscle to become inflamed. So can the vaccine cause myocarditis or inflame the heart? We now have data from multiple sources. The American Heart Association meetings this year from Dr. Lin, Dr. Wang writing for Cell Research, Dr. Avio uh, Avolio in clinical research all have elegantly shown that the spike protein, which the current mRNA vaccine products ask the body to make, are cardiotoxic and cause the heart to be inflamed. Let that sink in. The current public health plan is asking our own body to make a cardiotoxin. The spike protein sets in motion a cascade of events that activates platelets to form clots and inflames the blood vessels lining the heart and the heart muscle itself. So how often does this happen? That answer comes with many caveats because the risk is very much associated with age and gender men 14 to 40 being at the highest risk. But most alarming was a recent study from Thailand that watched and tested adolescents before and after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. They found that two, uh, of the 202 adolescent boys that they were studied, five of 202, or 2.4%, demonstrated myocardial image, uh, sorry, injury. And two of the 202, had a 1% or 1% had irritation of, of the sac around the heart or pericarditis. One in 40 people having their heart inflamed after vaccination is very concerning, especially considering the majority 
close to 80 percent of those serving in our military are males between the age of 18 and 44. You may have heard that the unvaccinated are at higher risk for myocarditis than those who are vaccinated. A large study from the Nordic countries found that not to be true. The paper in JAMA Cardiology by Dr. Lejeune and all showed that the highest risk for myocarditis was in those vaccinated males, 12 to 39, two shots were worse than one, Moderna was worse than Pfizer, and the Pfizer-Moderna combination was the highest risk of all. What about college students? The recent paper by Hogue and all used CDC estimates to show how many students would be saved from hospitalization from COVID by vaccination compared to studies showing the real risk for myocarditis. What they showed was for a million students going to college that the Pfizer vaccine would save 32 from going to the hospital. The Moderna vaccine would save 23. If you looked at myocarditis, it, the amount of myocarditis you would see by the CDC estimate was 47 for Pfizer and 70 for Moderna. Other studies have showed Pfizer to cause 126 cases of myocarditis per million, and another one by Sharif et al. showed 147 compared to a saving of going to the hospital of 32%. Many of the health of public officials have, have agreed that the vaccines are causing myocarditis, but it's mild. Having spent time with thousands of patients explaining their child's heart problem, if your child has to be hospitalized in the ICU with myocarditis, even if I call it a mild case, no parent ever thinks that their child being in a pediatric ICU is mild. Um, so what can we say about the recovery from the effect of the vaccine associated with the spike proteins, cardiotoxins, long-term effect on the heart? That st a study was recently published in Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. The, it says the outcomes of at least 90 days since the onset of myocarditis after mRNA COVID vaccination in adolescents and young adults in the USA. And what they found was pretty alarming. What they showed was that if they looked at the echocardiogram and EKG, that those all went back pretty close to baseline in the majority of patients. And that's what you'll often hear. Oh, the EKG was normal. Oh, the echocardiogram was normal. Or the blood test to see if the heart was inflamed, the troponin, it's all back to normal. However, if they dug a little deeper, what they saw was that the, if they looked with a cardiac MRI, one of our most sensitive tests to look for damage to the heart, they saw that in the 151 kids who had an M MRI, at 90 days, 81 of them still had damage to their heart, and the damage was of late gadolinium enhancement, which is associated with sudden cardiac death. Um, I am passionate for the health of our children. I'm also passionate for young service members that I served for 13 years in the Air Force as a flight surgeon, deployed twice to Iraq. For our healthy children and the majority of our war, war fighters, the data show that the risk for myocarditis is greater than the benefit of the vaccine products. As a physician who is bound to do no harm, my opinion is that we should not mandate harm. Thank you. Wow, we should not mandate harm. That was. Dr. Kirk Milhone, he couldn't have said it any better. He cited the literature on myocarditis, I think, better than anything I've ever heard. It's clear the risks of myocarditis and heart damage far outweigh the benefits. 
that they are sustained in a large fraction of individuals. And there is a chain of logic uh, indicating that this vaccine-induced myocarditis is leading to sudden death. Now let's listen to testimony from Dr. Renata Moon. She's the first time she's been in the U.S. Senate. I also invited her, an academic pediatrician, and let's hear what she has to say regarding COVID-19 vaccination, informed consent, and her population of interest, children. Uh, probably two or three cases of myocarditis prior to 2021 in my entire career. I've practiced for over 20 years, very experienced, lots of, lots of inpatient care as well as clinic work. What I'm seeing now, and so what I've seen and what I directly know about cases of myocarditis, they've gone very high, it's been very high. There's clearly been a massive increase. I would like to, um, if it's okay to show the package. No, no, no you, you've got the props, yeah, so. Yeah, thank you, I have the audience uh, what, I, I what a standard package is. Yeah, this is the package insert that Dr. Gortler was referring to, and I, I do think it's important to show. So I've been an advocate of vaccines for my entire career. Um, typically, when you open a box of the vaccine product, there's a vial in it, and there's a box, and it has a package insert. And this is an example of one that um, it's sealed. And you know, honestly, for the most part, we don't always read it because we've already looked at it, and and so it goes in the box with the stays in the box. Um, but so when I, we open this package insert, a typical package insert looks like this. So, has a great deal of information on it in terms of adverse reactions, um, the components of it, uh, and I'll let Dr. Gortler expand on sort of where this comes from in terms of the FDA. Uh, no, it's a lot of information, kind of like your terms of use for your Apple products. That's right. So there's a lot of information, but we do expect to see this because what, what in the world are we being asked to inject into our nation's children? And that's my question. So a few months ago, I, I looked at the package insert. I pulled it from the box of mRNA product. And, you know, it was sealed just like I'm showing you here. I, I unsealed the box that the entire thing came in. And then I pulled this out. And this is what it looks like. So I'd like to show this to you. It is, sorry about that. It's, um, it's blank on oh, both sides. And there it, it is. It says intentionally blank on it. That's the data that pharmacists and physicians are basing on giving the injections outside of mainstream media recommendations. There it is right there. Here's a good question. Why didn't they just print that on a piece of paper the size of a postage stamp? Why all the theater of folding it up into a great big piece of paper like, like that? Why? But that, that's, as, as that's, that's, that's what's passing for informed consent. Right, so how am I to get informed consent to parents when I have, this is what I have. I have a government that's telling me that I have to say safe and effective, and if I don't, my license is at threat. Um, how am I to give informed consent to patients? We're seeing an uptick in myocarditis. We're seeing an uptick in adverse reactions. We have trusted these regulatory agencies. I have for my entire career up until now. Something is extremely wrong. And um, that is the anecdotal story that I have. Well, first of all, th thank you, Dr. Moon. I can tell I you, it's really an astonishing, two or three uh, astonishing t testimony from Renata Moon, professor of medicine in pediatrics. And, uh, you know, the Senate testimony is an opportunity to get things in the record and to get different viewpoints. I wanted you to give just a few words 
by Dr. James Thorpe, uh, obstetrician and gynecologist, and uh, we don't have time for his entire testimony, but I wanted to give you just a, a, a feel of what he said. We've used from VAERS and CDC uh, data, and we compared the COVID-19 vaccines uh, over the last 15, 18 months with those of the influenza vaccine in pregnancy. And what we've seen is catastrophic. It's a danger signal like no others. I don't have time to review all of those problems, but what I will say is that the CDC and the FDA look for a two-fold increase as a danger signal, a two-fold increase. What our study showed was not two-fold increases, but 50, 100, or 1,000 increases in menstrual abnormalities, for example, almost 1,200-fold increase compared to the influenza vaccine. About miscarriage, 58-fold increase in miscarriage from the COVID-19 vaccines compared to that of the influenza vaccine. And I could go on and on. Fetal death, 38-fold increase. This is what I've seen. This is what the data shows. My patient... That is astonishing. You can hear this uh, exponential increase in adverse pregnancy outcomes and fetal outcomes. That's James Thorpe telling the United States on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It can't be any more clear. The COVID-19 vaccines are a maternal fetal disaster. No woman should have ever taken one of these <coughs> vaccines. Now, you may be wondering, Dr. McCullough, where were you in all the Senate proceedings? Well, I certainly had my time to, turk, time to talk, and I was co-moderating with Senator Johnson, but I wanted to pay, pay a few clips. I was trying to be as brief as possible, but uh, when called upon, I gave my input. Many of you know me very well uh, as McCullough audience listeners, but this is what I said into the U.S. Senate record. Dr. McCullough, I know you've talked about repeatedly the, the panels that they didn't impanel on this, uh, the, the experts that they ignored. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I've, I've chaired or been on at least two dozen data safety monitoring boards for emerging drugs, some of which were very promising. And the hopefulness of the sponsors is always there. So when we hear, hear the word safe and effective, I think those are words of hope. When you saw that video and you heard the, the hopeful statements that this was going to stop the problem, you could see the enthusiasm on the faces, and I understand that. But safety always comes first. Safety first. We're so concerned about peanut allergies in our country. There's not a single bag of peanuts on any plane flying over the skies right now. We would never force peanut butter into the mouths of every single kid in the United States. Never. We always have concerns over safety. We always have concerns over allergies. It's been reported today in VAERS that there have been thousands of life-threatening reactions, many of them allergic reactions, and yet to this day the military employers are mandating the vaccines irrespective of allergic reactions, which are clear contraindications. Every drug and every vaccine has contraindications that's determined by the doctor and the patient together in that relationship. This program should have had a data safety monitoring board and a critical event committee looking at every single death and hospitalization coming in quickly, making phone calls, figuring out what happened, 
ascertaining uh, its relationship to the uh, the vaccine assessed on, on the site by the individuals there, that's called the, the site investigators, as well as by an adjudication committee, and then having periodic meetings. And it's my testimony today that this vaccine program would have been stopped February 1st of 2021 because of excess mortality. Um, and as a result, thousands of Americans have died needlessly because of recklessness on the part of our federal agencies. So, so you can see that, you know, I have to make the point regarding this issue of recklessness. It's, it's very important. We cannot just allow this to go on. And uh, with this sense of, well, well, there's nothing we can do, uh, uh, that it's simply, uh, it's simply going to happen. Uh, no matter what. No, it's reckless. They could have been pulled off the market. Uh, there's no doubt about it that we had a duty to protect Americans. Our regulatory agency had a duty to protect Americans, and in fact, they didn't. These are the final remarks. This is the closer. Someone had to say it. We're at the end of a three-hour session. And Vaccine injury gave the final centers remarks. of excellence across the United States for screening, detection, uh, diagnosis, prognosis, and management. Uh, we need a massive shift in our healthcare system towards managing now this large number of vaccine injured people. What's at stake here is death. And the deaths that were reported by Mr. Dowd and, and others, the deaths on a more probable than not basis that are occurring in someone who have taken a vaccine are due to the vaccine and the autopsy studies show it. It's alarming to save American lives now these vaccines can be pulled off the market. And that's it. I mean, the final call is these vaccines, they have to be pulled off the market. We don't have any other alternative at this point in time. And I can put a postscript on this that within 48 hours of my historic U.S. Senate testimony calling for all the COVID-19 vaccines to be pulled off the market, specifically, I mean Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson, and Novavax, pulled them all off the market. We heard from member of parliament in the EU, conservative member Andrew Brigden, and he also called in the UK parliament to pull the COVID-19 vaccines off the market. Similar calls had come from member of parliament Christine Anderson in Germany for the EU parliament by Malcolm Roberts uh, in the Australian Parliament, uh, as well as by the World Council for Health. The World Council for Health, who we've interviewed their executive committee on the McCullough Report in the past. The World Council for Health has called for the recall of all vaccines globally. And they made this call on June 11th, 2022. Now, there had been a whole series of stern warnings uh, some have gone back recently, Steve Kirsch on his Substack went back in time and said, you know, who is the first doctor to really raise concerns or potentially call for these to be halted or pulled off the market? And my name came up based on U.S., uh, I'm sorry, State Senate testimony in the Texas Senate, March uh, uh, 11th. 2021 when I raised the issues. I, I do give credit to a French lab who came out pretty strongly uh, in stating the vaccine should be 
pulled off the market. But it was clear when we, in May of 2022, when we had a paper by Bruno and colleagues, 57 authors, 17 countries. The title of the paper is uh, a Serious uh, Concerning Questions Regarding SARS-CoV-2 Mass Vaccination. And we sent that paper, in a sense, as a letter to every single health authority in the world. So it was clear early in 2021, we could have limited the damage. We could have limited the injuries, disabilities, and deaths by pulling the COVID-19 vaccines off the market. We're now two years into this mass indiscriminate vaccination program. It's gotten progressively worse. The vaccines have had now no theoretical benefit. Uh, they have only uh, continued in ongoing uh, injuries, disabilities, and deaths. As we sit here today, approximately 87% of Americans are taking no more vaccines. Only about 13 to 14% are taking boosters. In a recent uh, paper published today in JAMA by first author Stevenson, 45% uh, of nursing home patients are taking boosters and only 22% of nursing home employees are taking them. We don't have a single group where there is considerable enthusiasm or compliance with COVID-19 mass vaccination. And as we close out 2022 and look forward to 2023, I think the happiest announcement we could have worldwide is the global withdrawal and pulling from the market all of the COVID-19 vaccines, doing a worldwide comprehensive analysis for safety, identifying what we can learn in terms of uh, the epidemiology of vaccine injuries, disabilities, and deaths uh, regarding the lots, the products, the predisposition. And then finally, directing our in uh, efforts, our research efforts with a massive funding, similar to what we saw in the tobacco settlement, but a massive amount of funding for vaccine injuries, disabilities, and compensation for death. We have to put this giant, giant, a horrible story for America and the world behind us. The only way to do that is to end the mass vaccination program. We will have some more cases of COVID-19, but we have sufficient drugs, treatment protocols, and infrastructure that we can handle any remaining cases. We can stop any further uh, uh, resistant strains and mutations and stop certainly any more vaccine morbidity and mortality if we simply pull them off the market. Well, that's it for this uh, this week's show. This has been a special U.S. Senate session. It's going to play during the holiday period of time. I want to uh, take this opportunity to, to wish all of my listeners a happy holiday season, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll see you on the other side of New Year's Eve on the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.